Great. So the uh, topic I've been asked to speak on today is, uh, or the title is, Christianity is not a psychological crutch. Is there more to Christianity than uh, psychological crutch? What is uh, what is a psychological crutch? I think a psychological crutch is this: it's something which doesn't re- exist in reality, but which helps us through a difficult period or which helps us through the hard periods of life. Um, I'm now at the stage where the students that I work with, when they um, come across my music collection, they'll describe it as retro. To me it's quite current, but uh, to them, my music collection is quite retro. And uh, some of you uh, will have come across this film, Castaway. To me, I think it's quite a cool film. To a lot of the students, it's quite retro. But the film Castaway is all about psychological crutches. Uh, For those of you who haven't seen it, it's about a guy called Noland, who is played by Tom Hanks, who ends up uh, stranded and isolated on a desert island. And he's absolutely driven to uh, his wit's end. And he has to use every one of his resources only to, I guess, have the will to stay alive. Uh, thinking that he may just be forgotten. And there are three particular psychological crutches that see Tom Hanks' character Nolan through. Uh, One is uh, the hope that his girlfriend will still be waiting for him at home, even though it turns out that it is months and years until he finally sees her. And I guess that hope becomes quite remote, but that's a crutch for him. And the other one is he's a delivery man. He works for FedEx, and when he gets stranded, there's one particular FedEx box that uh, ends up on the desert island with him. And one of the ways in which he maintains purpose in life is to think, okay, it is absolutely vital that I deliver this box. And some of you will remember the scene towards the end of the film where he finally does do so. But the third and most famous and maybe the most significant psychological crutch for Tom Hanks' character is this guy, uh, a, a volleyball uh, called Wilson, uh, which uh, Tom Hanks personifies, and he uh, makes Wilson this face. And w- Wilson becomes this friend and confidant to whom Tom Hanks' character will unburden himself. And it's these, this psychological crutch, particularly Wilson, that keeps Tom Hanks alive. Now, if you went and said to his character, look, Wilson doesn't have any reality, he's just, he's just a busk, he's just a volleyball, that would be to miss the point, wouldn't it? Because actually, the need to have a friend on that island was so great that Nolan would make one up in order to be able to see himself through. And so a psychological crutch is this, something which doesn't exist in reality, but helps us through the difficulty of life. And so this is the charge that is sometimes made against Christians. That actually life is just hard. Life is difficult. And therefore, if you are a sort of person who needs a a sort of help to get you through, you'll willingly believe this made-up story called Christianity because it is of emotional and psychological benefit to you. But actually, at root, it's completely insubstantial. 
You might know Karl Marx, the uh, founder of uh, communism. He said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. And even more famously, do you remember what he said? Religion is the opiate, the drug of the people. It's as if we can inoculate ourselves against the difficulty of life through holding on to religious teaching that will see us through. It's also uh, being said uh, more recently as well. Uh, these are people from the Melanesian cargo cults. I don't know if uh, any of you have come across them before. Essentially, in Melanesia, uh, present-day Vanuatu, they're very remote islands and, uh, and are basically technologically untouched. But during the Second World War, a number of uh, US RAF uh, bases were set up uh, on these islands. And the Melanesians were amazed to see such technology. And they were particularly amazed that these cargo ships and planes seemed to come from nowhere bringing treasures to these visiting people. And so what the Melanesians did, and this is absolutely true, you can check this out today, is that they tried in as much as they could to dress like and keep what they thought were the rituals of the American RAF. Uh, personnel. Here you might be able to see they've made sort of machetes uh, for themselves, made out of wood and there's no blade on them. You might also see that they've tried to make trousers that look vaguely like uh, um, US uh, Air Force um, uh, dress. And the idea is if we dress like these people and if we do the same rituals as them, we march up and down with these special sharp sticks, then maybe the gods will send us cargo as well. That it will come from nowhere and uh, we will be rich just as these white people seem to be. And even prophecies have emerged according to this religion which is formed. This is one of them that one day when the cargo comes... Old people will regain their youth. Sickness will vanish. White people will be expelled from the island never to return. And cargo will arrive in such great quantity that everyone would have as much as they wanted. And a lot of atheists point to this and say, look, this is how religion emerges. Of course the cargo isn't going to come just because they're wearing US Air Force trousers. Of course cargo isn't going to come just because they... They are copying what it means to be uh, U.S. Air Force personnel. All this is, is a psychological need. And this is how religion emerges. It's based upon our fears. It's based upon our desires, which we project onto a big screen and call it God. Stephen Hawking, who uh, is very contemporary at the moment, isn't he, because of the film made about him, put it like this. Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark. Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark. Do you see his point? He's saying Christians are Christians because they are weak. They can't deal with the harshness of life. They need a parent figure. They need someone that will help them as they think about their deaths. And so they sort of conjure up these beliefs. And they might help them through life, but ultimately they're completely insubstantial. Now, if you're like me, you don't want to be naive. You don't want to be building your life upon something which is just in your head. 
that doesn't have any reality. And so how as a Christian will I respond to this claim that actually Christianity is just a glorified version of the cargo cult which has emerged out of our own psychological need? Well, here are four ideas to hang our thoughts on today. Here's the first one. Any statement not resting on objective evidence can just be turned around. There you'll see a picture of a messy desk. Um, A few years ago, when we were still living in Lancaster, um, I remember bounding into the kitchen one day to tell Linda that I'd just been listening to the radio as I was working, and uh, that there was this scientific study that had been undertaken, and I was really happy about it, because it said the people with the messiest desks are the people that are the most creative. And because I always have a messy desk, no matter how hard I try, I was quite glad to be told, well, this is down to my creative spirit. And so I remembered bounding into the kitchen and saying to Linda, do you know, no more criticism about the messy desk anymore. This is just my creative spirit. Now, this is what Linda said to me. She said, you only believe this statistic because you want to. You like the idea that, you know, because you've got a messy desk, you're this sort of creative spirit. But actually, the only reason you believe it is because you want it to be true. What did I say to her? Well, I said, look, the only reason you don't want to believe this is because you have a very tidy desk. And you can't cope with the idea that you are creatively repressed. It wasn't really the high point of our, uh, of our married life. But do you see the principle there? If you say that one person only believes something because it suits them to be true, it can just be turned around and say, well, the reason you don't believe this is because you don't want it to be true. The week that Stephen Hawking uh, said that Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark, the Daily Mail phoned up Professor John Lennox, who's a well-known Christian in Oxford, and said, well, what do you make make of this? He said, would you want a long answer or a short answer? They said one sentence would be quite good for our newspaper. So he said this, Okay, Stephen Hawking says Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark. I say atheism is for people who are afraid of the light. Now, which statement is true? Well, ultimately, just through saying those things, we don't know. Neither assertion proves anything. Both assertions claim that we tend to believe what we want to be true, But neither of those statements in and of themselves can say anything about the truthfulness or otherwise of Christianity at all. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. Psychology is good at explaining why certain people may hold false beliefs to be true. In other words, if Christianity isn't true, psychology can give a very good explanation for why there are still Christians. But equally, if Christianity is true, psychology can also give a very good reason as to why there are atheists in the world. It's very good at explaining why people may hold false beliefs. But what psychology cannot do is comment on whether or not Christianity is actually true. Sigmund Freud was one of those who laid into Christians and said, look, Christians are just people who want a father figure when their parents have died or aren't close anymore. But here's the thing, according to Freud's own theories, a person would seem to have at least as plausible a reason for wanting to do away with a father in heaven as actually believing in him. 
This guy is called Czeslaw Milos. He is a Polish uh, author who's won several prizes for his literature. And he grew up under communism in Eastern Europe. He commented on the bitter irony of Karl Marx's words. Do you remember? Religion is the opiate for the people. Listen to this. He says, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace that for our betrayals of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice and murder, we are not going to be judged. And so do you see his point? Do you see his point? He's saying fear fulfillment could be equally as good a reason for not believing in God as wish fulfillment might be a reason for believing in God. Could it be that rather than Christians uh, believing in God because they want him to exist, there could be others who don't believe in God because they don't like the idea of his non-existence. That's what he's saying. The Bible says an interesting thing. It says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're not saying that atheists are stupid. That's not what the Bible says. It's not saying that atheists are thick or slow. But what that sentence is saying is this, that people who want moral freedom to do their own thing will wish for and argue for God's non-existence. So there's the first point, that any sort of statement which claims that one person believes something merely because they want it to be true can just be turned around. Here's the second idea for us today. I want to say this, not all gods are the same. Here's Richard Dawkins, this is a quote from The God Delusion. He says this, I'm not attacking the particular qualities of Yahweh or Jesus or Allah or any other specific god such as Baal or Zeus or Wotan. Any creative intelligence, get this, any creative intelligence of sufficient complexity to design anything comes into existence only as the end product of an extended process of gradual human evolution. Now I wonder how you respond to that. At at first I say, well, I'm tempted to say, well, it sounds fair enough. Richard Dawkins says I'm not singling out any one God in particular. And we say, okay, fair enough, Richard. It seems as though you want to sound somehow politically correct. You're not just going to attack one person's God. You're going to attack everybody's God. But do you notice the flaw in the argument? And do you notice the fast one that Richard Dawkins pulls over many people, and it's this. He will say, look, because you can prove that the cargo cults grew up because of psychological need, therefore, all belief in God, regardless of which religion you come from, can be shown to come from psychological need as well. But here's the first one that he pulls on us, and it's this. Just because some beliefs can be shown to be out of psychological need does not mean that all belief in the supernatural roots in psychological need. Just because some religious belief can can be shown to come from psychological need, it doesn't follow that all religious belief comes from psychological need. Do you know, the Bible itself says that there are plenty of religious beliefs that say more about us and more about our desires and more about our psychology 
than it says about any objective reality of God. In the Old Testament, there are prophets who are criticised by the writers of the Bible for saying that for saying that God loves certain things which he hates because it suits them to be able to believe that God is like that. In the New Testament, one of the writers says this about the religious beliefs of the day. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their God is their belly. They're not saying, he's not saying they literally worship their bellies. What he is saying is, in a sense, they worship their appetites. And therefore, the God that they imagine and fashion says more about their desires and their instincts than it does about God's objective existence. And so, here's the point. Here's what the Bible says. Yes, some belief, some religious belief may be psychological. But it doesn't therefore follow, logically, that therefore all belief in God is mere psychology. In fact, the Bible would say an interesting thing. It says this, that basically religion is the human desire of trying to grasp and find God. And the difference with Christianity is that God pulls aside the curtain, reveals himself, steps into human time and space to make himself both known and knowable. Now Richard Dawkins here is assuming and asserting without any evidence whatsoever that all religions have the same basic core components, all of which can be explained away as psychological crutches, and therefore all gods and all religions are simply projections of human desire. But there are key distinctions between religions, including how God is made known and knowable, as we will see. Thirdly, psychological explanations have their limits. For one thing, this psychological explanation doesn't say a lot about those who become Christians, almost because, but but with no need to do so. C.S. Lewis was one of those, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a well-known atheist and he became a Christian well into his adult life. And it actually made his life very, very difficult when he became a Christian. There may be people here at this church who've become Christians in adult life as thoughtful people and actually it's made your life a whole lot more difficult than just sort of believing in God and and life becoming easier and having sweetness and light. Sometimes when I meet Uh, students who aren't Christians, they assume as though Christians have no more evidence for believing in God than they do for the tooth fairy or the flying teapot in the sky. As if Christians become Christians just on the basis of mere hunches or feelings. But people like C.S. Lewis don't become Christians on the basis of a mere hunch. But because they are compelled by the evidence. Particularly, C.S. Lewis became a Christian because he was compelled by the evidence that God had revealed himself in human space and time in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so, in other words, it's dealing with the evidence, of, the evidence of, for Jesus, particularly his death and resurrection, that is the basis for Christians' faith in Jesus. 
I wonder if you picked that up as Jane read this passage. Paul, the Bible writer, says that Christ died, that he was buried, that he he was raised. And that these things happened not in in a world once upon a time or in a distant galaxy many, many years ago, but in human space and time which can be investigated. For me, this is what compels me to be a Christian. There have been one or two times in my life where I've been so shaken by what's happened to me that it's made me think, do you know what, is this just a game? Is this all just in my head? Does this all say more, more about me as a person than the objective reality of God? And I remember about five years ago hearing that one of the students that I'd worked with had tragically committed suicide. And I remember being on a train journey and you know how death often brings those questions that are somewhere at the back of your head right to the front. And I remember just thinking on that train journey, man, is this all just a game? Is this all just a game? Is this all in my head? And I found myself reading this very Bible passage and thinking, I have no new evidence since yesterday that Jesus was not raised from the dead. I have no new evidence since yesterday that death was able to conquer Jesus. And therefore, I can believe that there is hope even in the midst of tragic circumstances which is solid and which is lasting. And it's that which compels many, many Christians to make decisions which actually make things much harder for them now. Sometimes I think people tend to think that if you Christians only become Christians because of this psychological thing, because they want an easy life. And yet, Do you know what I often see? The opposite is true. I can think of people who are so convinced that Jesus is the revelation of God that they've chosen not to get married rather than to marry someone that they believe uh, as someone outside of the faith would be dishonouring to God. Equally, I've met people who stay in their marriages when it might be easier to walk away from their marriage because they're absolutely certain that Jesus is God. I've met people who give away vast sums of their income because they're convinced that Jesus is God. See, the more I read about Jesus, the God of the Bible, I find that he doesn't sound like the all-too-human, flawed gods and goddesses of ancient Greece or Rome. Do you know what? Like Aslan, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, the biblical God whom C.S. Lewis came to know and to trust. He's good, but he's not safe. He's not the kind of God that you would, could make up. And that brings me briefly to the fourth point. The Bible's perspective is that the ache that we feel to know God exists precisely because you and I were created to live in relationship with the one true God. A man who is floating on a raft in the sea may be unbearably thirsty, but of course he doesn't get a drink of water just through feeling thirsty. And yet the fact that he does 
have thirst, shows that a way for his desire for water can be satisfied. Thirst can be quenched. We have that desire for water and it's possible to satisfy it. And here's C.S. Lewis again. He once wrote this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Now, all our deepest needs and longings suggest to us a God who alone can satisfy those desires and longings. We have all sorts of desires, don't we? For sexual satisfaction, for lovely holidays, for good food. But however enjoyable these experiences are, we're never fully satisfied by them. We always find ourselves yearning for something more, something beyond, something ultimate. C.S. Lewis said it's as if we've got a desire for something which has never actually happened. And so our unfulfilled desires seem to point us to something or ultimately to someone that no earthly thing can satisfy. The Bible says this is no mere psychological need that you make up, but this innate longing that each of us feels is for a relationship with the one true God. That's what you were made for. And until you enter that relationship, there will always be this sense that there is a longing which, however much we grasp for it, it just seems to get away. Centuries before C.S. Lewis wrote about these sorts of things, another adult to Christianity, St. Augustine, expressed these words, which you may just be able to make out on the screen. You have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The Bible says it's as if we have a homing device within us for heaven, for God. That God has set eternity in our hearts. And until we grasp onto the hand of God who has made us to know him, we will never be at rest. We will never be at rest. But as we finish, the most important question is not whether you have a psychological need for God or a desire for God, whether or not that does exist for you. The question is this. Is the God of the Bible really there? Is the God of the Bible really there? And then the question follows... If so, how would we know? How would we know? Coming back to the reading we had, it makes precisely the point that he has made himself known. That the one true God took on human form and walked down the dusty streets of Palestine and went to a cross for us, not only to make himself known, but to make himself knowable. The Bible writer will say Christianity is only good if it is true. Did you hear what he said? If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied above all. And so, if you're not a Christian here today, let me offer you a challenge. Why not ask somebody else here who is a Christian and say, what's compelled you? 
What's compelled you to believe that the God of the Bible is the God who is there and the God who has made himself known? Pick up a Bible. Look at the evidence that persuaded C.S. Lewis, that's persuaded the other Christians here and continues to persuade thinking adults around the world. And if you're a Christian here today, here's the encouragement. The God of the Bible is there. He's for us. And that means that you don't have to hedge your bets. You can, let, you can rest your life upon the claims of Jesus. And you can rest your death upon the claims of Jesus. And it's in knowing him and living wholeheartedly for him that you're set free to live for him. How about I just pray briefly for each of us now. Let's pray.